It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Hey there, welcome to The Tents. I'm your host, Scott Fellman, and it's time once again for another foray into the world of aquariums from a slightly different perspective. You know, like like so many of you who've been in the hobby for a long time, my you know, decades that I've been in the hobby, it's sometimes hard to plot my next move or what ideas I want to play with. I mean, sure, the, the hobby can be as simple as just, you know, getting the tank, filling it with water and put some plants and rock or whatever, and bam, you have an aquarium. But I'm talking about on a different level. Um, you know, on the other hand, it's supposed to be fun. And many hobbyists enjoy the process of researching, planning, and sourcing stuff. A lot of us love the idea of building or some of us like the idea of pushing out further and trying some completely new and exciting ideas or just something that's different or even the same as what we've done before but just executed differently. That being said, it's always fun to try something completely different, isn't it? And sometimes we could use a creative push in the right direction and I think that's helpful you know, to curate a little list of stuff that we maybe need to do as a hobby that might stimulate some ideas in your head. So I came up with three ideas today that I want to talk about things we've talked about over the years here, but maybe we'll jump in a little bit more, talk about what the problems are that we need to overcome, and then, you know, some interesting things you can do. Um, in no particular order, but we'll start with brackish water aquariums. Now, you know, those of you that have followed the tent and our blog and our podcast here uh, for several years and our Instagram feeds know we're obsessed with brackish water aquariums, mangroves, all that kind of cool stuff, and it's a lot of fun. Now, brackish water is like the poster child for misunderstood, underserved, and uninspired. The problem is that it suffers from a lot of misconceptions and a void of really good accessible information and examples of aquariums and examples of nature that are easily accessible to people. So there's some issues there. And if you go on some of these brackish water forums and you know groups and so forth on, on social media, you'll see just an incredible amount of not only bad information, but just sheer ignorance and, and even among people that are actually playing with this stuff the ideas that they're talking about and the, the way they're approaching things are just out of just completely just they make no sense to me I know this sounds harsh but it's been a kind of a problem and, and there's there's some good people that that are working hard in brackish aquariums <clears throat> excuse me and understand some of this stuff and have done some things even there's even a couple of good books out there but few and far in between there's been a little, little done on it. And I'd like to think that our sort of exotic take on it is maybe something that can help. Now, brackish water is arguably, you know, specific gravity of 1.005 to 1.010. And even that gets argued because I got blasted once on one of these forums for, for you know, for postulating that. Um, I was told strictly it's 1.003 to 1.05 or whatever. But, you know, if you look in scientific literature, it's all over the place. Regardless. Uh, it's widely misunderstood. Now, I've been playing with brackish water aquariums steadily for about two decades now. And in between, you know, reef keeping and my black water stuff and researching, you know, both the hobby work that's been done and the scientific materials out there in the wild habitats, I've sort of made the conclusion 
that it's simply been an afterthought at best for a lot of a chorus, and that's been a real problem. And I think that the the that one of the things that we can benefit from 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 uh, looking at Brackish is looking at the way we've been doing it for so long, and then realizing maybe that's not exactly how the wild habitats always are. You know, we've sort of distilled Brackish water aquariums down to, you know, white aragonite sand, a few gray rocks, and maybe some hardy plants, and it's been mired in that aesthetic or that mindset for decades. And then there's that whole perception thing. I think that the perception among many aquarium hobbyists is that brackish is more tricky to keep than freshwater, yet easier than like a reef tank, yet it offers little in the way of excitement on first glance. I mean, the fish selection and availability has not been exactly stellar, with many, you know, fish stores and dealers hesitant to stock brackish fishes for simple lack of demand and interest. Now, that is changing. There, there, again, there's, it's good that we have these forums and, and user groups and so forth because there is an interest. And I think people that are selling fish are starting to get the hang of it. And some manufacturers have made some brackish products out there. So there's things out there. Um, it just hasn't been widely, you know, accepted. And quite frankly, many of the fishes that have been perceived to be brackish by hobbyists are either actually from pure freshwater habitats, I'm thinking about glass fishes and some rainbows, or have some populations that are from brackish, which are seldom imported. Um, then you have fishes like bumblebee gobies, which are, yes, they do come from brackish habitats and are adaptable, but many of the ones we get in the aquariums may be collected from even soft acidic habitats. We've talked about that before. And then there's, you know, mollies, uh, which are urohaline, which means they're capable of tolerating a wide range of salt concentrations, even full-on reef aquariums. I have friends that have, have them swimming around in their reef tanks, but the majority are found in pure freshwater. Salt, in many cases, is simply used for health purposes, and we'll, we'll talk about that, that whole, you know, live bearer thing in a little bit. But that's the problem as I see it. The solution, in my humble opinion, is to bring a bit of, I don't know, new thinking to the equation. An approach which takes a more realistic look at how brackish water habitats really are, how they function, what they look like. A system that embraces natural processes and functionality and just happens to have a different aesthetic too. Less emphasis on sterile white sand and crystal clear water and more emphasis on a functional representation of a tropical brackish water ecosystem, which is sometimes muddy, nutrient rich, filled with sediment, mangrove leaves and stained a bit from tannins with mangrove, you know, roots and so forth. It's beautiful in a very different yet oddly compelling way. So enter the, you know, botanical style brackish water aquarium. It's a bit different. It's about husbandry. It's about management, observation. It's about diligence, challenge, and occasional failure. Yeah, you might kill some stuff because you might not be used to managing a higher nutrient brackish water system. You have a number of variables ranging from the specific gravity to the bioload to take into consideration. If you've never used salt mix before, your skills are going to be challenged. But the lessons learned in the botanical style aquariums that we're now more familiar with will provide you with this huge experience base that will assist you in navigating this tinted brackish water botanical style aquarium. It's not groundbreaking in that it's never, ever been done like this before. I just don't think that it's ever been embraced like this before. You know, met head on for what it is, what it can be, instead of how we wanted to make it, you know, in years past. Again, the bright white sand, crystal clear water, and a few rocks and shells. Rather, it's an evolution, a gradual step forward out of this artificially induced restraint of this is how it's always been done. Uh, another exploration into what the natural environment is really like and understanding, embracing, and appreciating its aesthetics, its functionality, and its biological richness. Figuring out how to bring this into our home aquariums, that sort of thing. 
With more hobbyists starting to play with more realistic interpretations of brackish water habitats, we'll see more discoveries, more collective experiences, more refinement of practices, and like more breakthroughs. We just have to not be afraid to occasionally jump off the path from the forums and Instagram and you know some of the books and articles that you can find on this and YouTube and all that and get into some scientific papers. Google this stuff. Google Scholar, Cielo. Uh, you've heard Ty uh, Streitman talk about some of these really great sources out there. Springerlink. All these scientific papers on all kinds of topics. Yes, they may be a little intimidating at first if you're not scientific, but the information out there is so valuable and you can distill so much. I think so many of the ideas we've played with here in Tannen have been derived from that type of work as opposed to, oh, look what that guy in you know Japan did in his aquarium. It's like, no, no, no. It's about what's going on in nature. It's a very different orientation. It's not as, I don't know, dogmatic as say the, the, you know, the biotope contest kind of mindset either. It's more of a, a research and development sort of project. So you're doing a lot of educating while you're doing a lot of executing. It's really fun. So this whole brackish thing kind of dovetails with another one of my favorite sort of arising ideas that I've started to play with. It's replications of the habitats of wild live bears. Now, more has been done in this area over the past few years because there are a lot of people into it. Uh, wild live bears are definitely a thing for many hobbyists and they're having kind of a moment. Um, there's something super cool about the many, many different species of fishes like Gadeids, Siphophorus, you know, sword tails, Heterandria, and mollies and stuff like that. And even more cool is the idea of replicating their natural habitats in a more realistic manner. Now, a lot of things, if you ask people, where do these come from? A lot of people don't even know, where does a guppy come from? Where does an endler's library come from? Oh, they'll, they'll, they'll quote that, you know, it comes from this river or that or whatever. What's the river like? What's the topography of the area? What's the soil like? What's the substrate? Like, we're not asking those questions, at least based on what I've seen in the hobby area. There's, there's very little. It's just, oh, keep them at this pH and this alkalinity and this temperature. But why? What's their natural habitat really like? Now, the problem, again, is finding detailed information about the wild habitats of many species. It's difficult to come by. You definitely have to go into the scientific literature. And I'll be honest with you, even in the scientific stuff, you can find out some information about the habitats where these fishes occur. How often, however, a lot of what you'll find is about um, various genetic uh, questions. It's about um, you know some of the taxonomy and so forth and, and the descriptions of the fishes. It's, there's not much mentioned about the ecology except that they'll say... You know, this fish is found in a, a certain location, a collecting site. So it's up to you to do even more research on that specific locale and kind of go from there, which is both frustrating and challenging because they may name a lake or a river, but there's little more mentioned about it. So you'll have to go find research done on that lake or river to find out what the water conditions are like, what the environment is like. I like, I find that stuff fascinating. Some people find it tedious. And then we fall back on, hey, it doesn't really matter. They can live in 7.0 to 8.5 pH at 78 degrees Fahrenheit. Who cares? Well, some of us do. Now, I think that replicating the natural streams, the lakes, and all these bodies of water is just interesting. And the habitats which they come from just might surprise you. And then there's a bunch of interesting ideas and approaches you can take. You know, brackish water, as we talked about, straight up fresh water, and then black water. Yes, blackwater live bears. We've talked about this before. Now, that seems unusual, doesn't it? Now, lest you get too excited that there's some super colorful live bear out there, which hasn't, you know, which has somehow evaded the hobby and all the famous live bear experts for the last century, let me just burst your bubble right there, okay? 
Most of these fishes are, in no particular order, gray, not typically found in the aquarium hobby, really obscure, and, oh, did I mention? Gray. That being said, I have a few that do intrigue me for some reason. Now, my first target is a genus called Fluvophylax, which contains five species, not one of which anyone who's not a native fisherman, lifetime member of the American Library Association, or doesn't have the letters PhD after his or her name has even heard of, let alone seen. These are really interesting fishes, distinguished by these large, at least relative to their body size, almost creepy-looking eyes, the absence of a, a gonopodium in the males, and the usual lack of color seemingly common to pretty much every obscure fish in the world, right? Despite the creepy eyes and complete lack of anything resembling color, they're tantalizing to me because the genus is apparently endemic to the Amazon and the Orinoco, including habitats like lakes, swamps, and floating meadows. Apparently, the first species listed is Fluvophylax obscurum, gotta love that name, which drew me in right from the start, and its native range is listed as the Upper Rio Negro Basin. Now, that's interesting. Of course, that's a really big geographic area, and just because it's in the region doesn't mean it's all decomposing leaves and dark and soupy water. That being said, some references have it listed pretty far inland, well into the Blackwater country, so yeah. Now, maddeningly, I couldn't find any reference to type localities mentioned in this, that mention the specific water chemistry of the collection sites. However, one cool thing is its diet, which always makes me sort of smile. Its diet is described as autochthonous microalgae and detritus and allochthonous invertebrates. We know what that means, right? <laughs> yeah, that's music to my ears. That means they come from habitats where food comes from outside of the environment. Forests, streams, obscure little holes near, you know, wooded areas. Gotta find me some of these fish. Now, interestingly, I was told by some people definitely in the know that fluvophylax is actually considered an egg-laying killifish, so I guess my information might even be flawed or misinterpreted, which is not the first time, of course. We may have to take this one out of the library you know, category after all. And of course, one hardcore scientific paper I stumbled on provided all sorts of chromosomal and analytics and stuff way over my pay grade, but couldn't clarify this, so hmm, that one's going to be a mystery for a while. In fact, the discussion section of the paper actually said that all species but the type specimen, which is, I think, Fluvophylax pygmaeus, has been described in the late 1990s, and much remains unknown about the biology, taxonomy, and systematics of the whole group. That is not helpful. Regardless, there is an unusual species. You know, whatever it is, it's pretty cool. Now, my next candidate of libraries has to be a genus called Pamperoichthys. This genus contains six described species, all of which look like, well, how can I say it? They look like butt-ugly wild mollies. Of course, 75% of the people outside the library geek community would immediately tell you that all wild mollies are kind of ugly, so I'm staying out of that debate for now. But interestingly, they are more closely linked to mollies than just about any other type of live bear. So even with my relative lack of knowledge about mollies, maybe I'm onto something. They're true undisputed live bears, which is cool, right? And the interesting part about these fish is their range. The genus name means fertile fish, which might tell you something here. In addition to the Amazon Orinoco Guyana region, its members are found in the Tapajos and the Zingu. And the habitats that are no, not really all black water, they're kind of in our softer acidic target range, right? Getting closer, huh? Now, one type locale, you know, mentioned for one of the species um, is the Paraguay River drainage. Also kind of close to what we're thinking about water-wise, right? The typical pH of the Paraguay River, because I looked it up, is 5.8 to 7.4 in the upper part and 6.3 to 7.9 in the upper in the lower part. 
So it's kind of all over the place. And of course, the Paraguay River ranges from being described as sediment-rich water to clear. I mean, pics I've seen of this river look brown, but yeah, no exact mention of black water, specifically as respects to the habitat of this fish in any of the research I found thus far. Oh, here we go. See, but I'm telling you, all this stuff leads you down all these cool paths. Then we have a species called Alfaro cultratus, which hails from Costa Rica, Panama, and Nicaragua, kind of guppy country, right? It's supposedly found in creeks, streams, and other waters with an average pH of around 6.8 and a hardness of around, I think, 5 degrees of hardness. It's a fish that is kept in the hobby, and it even has a common name, the knife live bear. I don't know why it has that name, because it doesn't look anything like a knife to me, but I know a number of live bear specialists who swear that this species does better and looks better in softer, more acidic water. Particularly, it has these reddish highlights in the scales and the fins. Seriously, even though it's gray, it has red. And it does have a certain look that would make it fit in with those flashier fishes, I think. So, yeah, could that be our baby? It could be one of our best matches yet. And when I looked up fish base, which is another great sort of scientific resource you should look at, they had an intriguing passage about this species, and I'm going to read it to you here. It says, Inhabits waters of low to moderate velocity between 0 and 300 meters of elevation. Lives on creeks of more than 0.5 meters deep in ditches and near shorelines of large rivers. Generally swims in small groups at a depth of 20 centimeters. Insectivorous, the young eat mainly aquatic insects and the adults feed specifically on terrestrial insects. Interesting. One collection locale was listed as a rapidly flowing rainforest stream. Intriguing? Yeah. A perfect fit? Hell no. I mean, rainforest stream can mean anything, right? <sighs> it's like I'm trying to fit a square peg in the proverbial round hole, but it shows you the depth an obsessed geek will go to. Oh, and then there's this one. Now, a while back, I received my long-awaited copy of Fishes of the Orinoco in the Wild by our friend Ivan Mikolzi, and I tell you to get this book. I've told you before. It's an amazing book. Just for the pictures alone, it's a great book. Uh, and I was really pleasantly just surprised to see a section with members of the family Posillidae, the live bears, right? More clues. And on page 278 in this must-have book, what to my amazed eyes did I see but our good friend Posillia reticulata, a.k.a. the guppy. Well, specifically a variety known as the orange line guppy, one that I've seen before. This was huge. And sure enough, Ivan relates in his enchanting sort of first encounter with these little beauties in a blackwater habitat, the real Morishal Lago in his native Venezuela. I looked it up, and it is a blackwater river. He described that they tend to stay in schools in the most shallow parts of the river and that they do not, and I quote, venture more than one and a half meters offshore where the water gets really dark and the larger fishes live. That's smart. That's all I needed to hear. And the accompanying photo, again, if you buy this book, even just for this one photo, it's worth it. <laughs> I'm sure there's a lot better reasons to buy this book, but boy, the pictures are amazing. Uh, a small group of these fishes is shown swimming in tinted waters with a gently sloping sandy bottom covered in decaying leaves, twigs, and botanical materials. And Ivan indicates that the pH in this habitat ranges from around 4 to 5.5, undisputedly acidic, conditions which we seldom seem to associate with live-bearing fishes, right? They're beautiful little fishes, with the males you know, possessing this kind of pinkish-orange horizontal line across the body and a small, almost black marking at the caudal pentacle. It's the base of the tail. They also possess a smaller, less distinct black spot behind the pectoral fins. And the, the females are generic, you know, government-issue live-bearer silver-gray, that kind of thing. Now, I've also seen these fishes on sale from various breeders listed as Campona guppies or El Salto guppies collected near the Ciudad Bolivar, that's about 50 kilometers east of El Tigre in Venezuela, in the Rio Morachal complex, the same one Ivan refers to in his book. 
Curiously, despite the common moniker guppy, most of the hobby listings I've seen indicate that they're Posilia wingi, Campona, you know, like Endler's Libraries. So there's a whole lot of taxonomic confusion, to say the least. All that being said, these are really intriguing fishes to me, whatever the hell they're called. So yeah, if you look hard enough, you'd be surprised at what you can find. Okay, but beating the crap out of Libraries yet? Yeah, I think I hope I got you excited about that. Well, let's talk about one of my other, my final little stop on this list of things we need to do today. How about recreating the habitats of killifishes? Now, we just talked about this last week with our, when uh, Johnny and I had uh, Summer Tiwari on and had a good discussion that I think we can go on and on and on about. Killies are this utterly engrossing group of fishes. They have amazing color, diverse spawning habits, and adaptability. And with those attributes, killifish should be some of the most popular fishes in the hobby. Yet, they are most definitely not. Problem here. What's the problem? The general hobby doesn't have a good understanding of just how amazing these fishes are. Period. To me, the reasons that I just mentioned and many others have kept them top of mind, you know, that have kept them top of mind for me over the years, even though I've not always kept them consistently. Their relative difficulty to obtain is sort of added to the mystique for me. That and the fact that they typically will not have a common name and they're generally referred to by their scientific name followed by a geographic locale and some other numbers and makes them all the more alluring to me. Hmm, geographic locales. That never scared anybody around here, right? No, it hasn't. Well, I digress. Now, these really arcane species names don't exactly help in the splashy, superficial Insta world that we live in right now in the 21st century. I mean, shit, there's like... 0.0000034% chance that a fish with the name like Australibius Aracan UIRT215-04 is ever going to like knock the cardinal tetra or the angelfish off and crack the hot 1000 list of the most popular aquarium fishes in the world, right? Not going to happen. Yet, those precise Latin descriptors and type localities belie a secret to those of us who do the work. They give us information of incalculable value about the specific biotope or habitat from where the fish hails from. And to those of us who strive to replicate on many levels the wild habitats from which our fishes come from, this is the pure gold. It's out there for the taking, this information. You've got to research it. And of course, one of the, thing I like, one of the things I like best about killifishes is that many come from habitats that would be perfect for us to replicate with our skills and our interests. Hobbyists who keep killies may not be as into the aesthetics of blackwater or botanical-style aquariums as we are, but nonetheless, they understand the dynamics of using natural botanical materials like peat moss, core and leaves to stimulate spawning and provide health benefits you know for their fishes it's part of the religion of killie keeping perhaps what also attracts them you know me to these fishes is that they are for the most part super small uh small or, or relatively small super colorful fishes who've managed to adapt and evolve to life in very unusual environmental niches like puddles small creeks temporary pools stuff like that and of course these are extremely i don't know botanically influenced environments replete with leaves and soil and mud and branches, all the stuff that we love. And the Achilles are intimately linked to the characteristics of their habitat and the seasonal changes that impact them. It's utterly fascinating. Now, interestingly, we've seldom, if ever, seen them being kept in, kept in anything other than a dedicated breeding setup with spawning mops and bare bottoms, occasionally a planted aquarium or whatever, but that's, you know, okay. I think that this has perpetuated this popular perception that they require the dreaded specialty conditions which is hobby vernacular for weird shit that's hard to do and the need for you know 200 tank setups that are going to turn your you into an aquarium version of the crazy cat lady with you know 500 boxes of plastic boxes filled with fishes and bubbling air stones and all that kind of stuff you might have but but with our approach you might have like 
maybe something a little different. You might have an idea that you want to run with. I think that attempting to replicate, to some extent, the aquatic habitats where they come from would go a long way towards making these fishes way more popular in the hobby. So instead of 300 odd plastic shoeboxes filled with Achilles and the aforementioned, you know, bubbling air stones, you might have like, I don't know, five or six biotope-inspired aquariums for Achilles. I say that now because once you get going, you might be like, oh my God, I'm going to try this one and this one and this one, which is cool. This could help ensure a bit of domestic tranquility, right? Now, how you manage your interpersonal relationships is your call. If it takes an aquascape tank or whatever, that's cool. But I think we can help make it a little bit easier with our approach, right? Might help you get multiple tanks. I'm just saying. Now, sure, some killies may be shy or some may be skittish. The little fuckers jump too, which I have to tell you, that's a real disappointment. I've lost a lot of fishes by jumping and uh, that really sucks. Now, all that being said... They, many of them come from soft acidic water, but they're really adaptable. And the last time I checked, we have this global community of really skilled people that play with weird stuff like, you know, soft acidic water and all kinds of different conditions that would scare the average hobbyist out of their wits. And we are into some pretty geeky stuff ourselves. That makes us the community to tackle fishes like these killies in a new way, in a whole new way. And I think that's a very exciting thing. Now, there's literally hundreds of species of killies to choose from, running the gamut from the top spawning species, which deposit eggs in floating plants, to the famous South American and African annuals, which deposit their eggs in mud and sediments at the bottom of temporary pools, so it would be impossible to generalize a biotope-inspired generic setup for all the different types of killies. However, one could create a more or less generalized setup for, say, species which come from small African streams and pools, or ones that come from mud holes or whatever. Granted, this is different than what the hardcore killifish breeders would do and not as efficient for controlled breeding as setting them up in a beer plastic shoebox with uh, spawning mobs. But it's a different way to enjoy these really unique fishes and to celebrate their unique ecological niches that they come from. I simply don't think that we as killie fans have done a great job of demystifying these fishes and their needs. As I just mentioned, we seldom if ever see them being kept in anything other than those utilitarian-looking, dedicated breeding setups with spawning mops and bare bottoms, and lots of people assume this is the way. It's not. It's just a different way. And what we're talking about is not that radical a departure from the rest of the work we do. And quite honestly, every time I put up pictures of killifishes in a cool tank, which isn't all that often, but I have, people say, oh my god, what is that fish? Are they hard to get? It spurs questions, which tells me there's a desire for something different and fun out there. Look, there's so many different things we could take on in the hobby. I just mentioned three. I could keep this podcast going for four hours and you'd probably be nodding off at some point. So we'll cut it off and maybe we'll come back and have this discussion uh, again. It's his favorite topic that I've had with many of our guests that we have on too. And again, these are just the killifish thing is just another of the many things that we need to do in the hobby. Another of the many directions that we can go. They're all important. They're all fun. And it's all stuff that sort of moves the needle forward in aquarium practice. We've all got something to contribute when we tackle this to-do list and get some cool stuff done. So stay excited, stay resourceful, stay diligent, stay inspired, and always stay wet. Until next time, this is Scott Feldman from Tannin Aquatics. Thanks for spending part of your day with me, and I look forward to seeing you on the next installment of The Tint.